open curtains Haters swerving cause they ain't ready for your final version I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Cause this is my road Let's get my action, I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Yeah, this is my road Let's get my action, I'm ready to go Way too long, we faced them storms Now you gon' face the dawn You waiting for, I said from night to That must be Barbara's call Good morning, good morning. How are you doing today, Pastor Lewis and Maricel Garcia? Thank you today for joining in on Tom Ficklin's show, where I'll be hosting in his absence. And I want to give each one of you uh, maybe uh, 30 seconds to just say something about yourself, and we can start with Marisol and then go to Pastor John. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Good morning. So I am a 1L at Vermont Law School, as well as a college to career fellow at Yale Prison Education Initiative, where I do a lot of research with regards to mass incarceration and its impact on those who are returning to the community and those who are still inside in relation to health. And that's actually exactly where I look to go with my education in policy. I did my undergrad and my master's in at Trinity with public policy specializing in health as well as criminal justice. Thank you. Thank you. Pastor Lewis, give us a 30 seconds. I, you're, I know you're a minister, but you have 30 seconds go. to tell us about you. Here we you. go. Here we go. Um, pastor Lewis, uh, I'm the pastor of Christ New Testament Church. Uh, I'm also the lead trainer and community liaison for the Connecticut Center for Nonviolence. Uh, I also do the training for the New Haven Police Department in de-escalation. I've been an activist for more than about 25 years. Thank you. Um, and something you just said about de-escalation for police and just made me think about you might be useful in doing some de-escalation training inside the jails and prisons because they sure. also need some someone to do some work on that. So thank you for mentioning that. I have to put that in the commissioner's ear. But anyway, uh, my name is Barbara Fair. For those who don't know, I'm the lead organizer for Stop Solitary Connecticut. And both um, Pastor Lewis and Marisol are on our steering committee. And I've been doing this work, it seems like forever and ever, at least starting out as a teenager. And I have done a lot of work around police brutality, but now I'm focused on um, jails and prisons. So we want to start off the show talking about some of the things that are going on inside the Department of Corrections and what kind of changes we would like to see happen. Um, I'm going to go to um, Pastor Lewis first, but before I mention, before I ask him a question, I want to talk about an event that we have coming up tomorrow night, Tuesday at 6 p.m. at the Whitneyville Commons Center at 1253, that's 1253 Whitney Avenue in Hamden. And it's going to be an event where um, a news a media, Connecticut Mirror, are bringing all their reporters and their publisher, and they want to hear from the people in the community. What are some of the concerns that you have that you like to see addressed in the media, but you don't see it addressed? And so that brings me to my very first question um, for Pastor Lewis is we've had conversations about uh, uh, the many, many deaths that happen behind the walls, behind prison jail walls. And 
we don't very much hear hardly anything about those deaths as though, as though those people don't matter. And so it's very concerning and upsetting for me. And so I'd like to hear from you, Pastor Lewis, um, what, what, do you, what is your take on uh, what's going on around deaths and DOC? Well, I, I, again, you know, Barbara, as you said, me, you've talked about it. I, I personally have, actually, I'm doing a funeral for a young man this week, uh, this Wednesday at my church who committed suicide uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago. I think his name was, uh, 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 his name is Watson. Uh, but, uh, and then also my, my wife's nephew, uh, overdosed <laughs> inside of DOC. He had got a hold of some fentanyl, uh, cocaine. Uh, and so again, there's a total disconnect. I, I, again, once an individual is put in DOC, a uh, Department of Corrections, because of whether he did something or not, that's irrelevant. Once they go into that custody, there should be a, a level of accountability to those that are, in the community as well as for those individuals' families so that they know the well-being of that person, which that, that is not happening. I mean, the progress, whatever it is that's going on, the difficulties that that person might be having. So there's a disconnect. There's like a world by itself. Like once you go inside of DOC, it's like you're disconnected from the world. No one knows right. what's really happening to you. You don't really know what's going on inside of there, except a family member or an experience happens, and then you get some information. I think DOC uh, should be, and, and, and it should be accountable in the sense of communicating or having a connection with the community, especially not just family, but those that are going to deal with those individuals coming out. There should be that yes. kind of accountability there. And that we just don't have. So, and then as a matter of fact, one, one other thing, I'm meeting with a young man today uh, that is on the run. Uh, he not, I don't know where he's at, but he made contact with me, uh, his, his parole officer or whatever like that. And I told him, you got to turn yourself in. But he says he's afraid because of what happened to him inside of the Department of Corrections. Wow. He, wow. He's afraid to go back in. So he'll rather risk his life then to go back into the custody of DOC. Well, I mean, you know, and he didn't murder nobody. He just got to right, right. finish out some of his time. But it is so, he's terrified wow. of going back wow. in there, wow. whether it's from the officers or from what goes on inside there with the inmates. But, I mean, there definitely has to be something that's done. These people, uh, individuals are not going in there to, to, to be uh, brutalized or disconnected. They're going there for reform. Right. Reform, and that's what they're going in for. Thank you very much for for that. Um, I want Marisol to uh, to jump in too. Um, any stories she might have heard about, you know, people uh, with, um, you know, overdosing or dying or anything that doesn't hit the media. You know, I I've, I've been home for about for a little over four years now, and my friend actually passed away in 2022 um, from COVID complications. Um, herself, uh, she was in, incarcerated for over 25 years at York Correctional. And, you know, I remember when I used to do hospice care with her, you know, you used to see some of the women who were coming in off the streets that were dealing with, you know, withdrawal and other things. And these are the very things that what Pastor Lewis was talking about is so true. They treat you and they brutalize you and treat you like animals. You hear this so often about 
people who are having uh, withdrawals or seizures and they're left into a room in their own vomit, you know, a staff walks by and it's kind of like, eh, eh, well, you know, there you are. It's, it's done in such an inhumane manner and so dismissive. I think that's what they forget. You know, they treat prisons become, you know, the correctional centers become like silos, even the buildings that are within the facilities themselves. They're so cut off from communication. You know, it's like a really wild game of telephone about what happens from building to building, you know, inmates talk, you know, everybody passes messages, you know, about what happens on the, you know, in the facility, you know, be it for the women, I can only imagine what the men's facility must be like, but yet you see these things in the media of where a correctional officer was caught bringing in drugs and alcohol into the facility, you know, along with like electronic and uh, cell phones and things like that, you know, they make it where it's this, you know, secret, uh, in, like secrets um, system that the inmates are like, you know, this is what we're doing. And there's like this big, you know, spy network. No, look at where it's coming from. And the fact wow. that, you know, they treat people like, I think one of, you know, Pastor Lewis was saying something very interesting about the young man that he just mentioned that said he would rather risk life out on the run out here rather than go back into corrections. And you have to think about it. These people were, I say we, I'm going to say we are treated like it's almost like imagine a, an animal that that's been kept in a box with no daylight, no sunlight, no communication, no nothing. Then all of a sudden you're let loose in the community. You're terrified because of all the noise, all the activity, all the, everything that's going on. You're overstimulated. You're not sure what's going on. You probably all the support system that you thought you had, you would have is not there. And I think that's what people don't recognize that releasing people, keeping people isolated in, in the correctional system, keeping them isolated within the facility, keeping them, you know, treating them like animals, the way that is done in solitary, as well as even within these other buildings, that has long-term impact. You know, as a part of my fellowship at Yale, you know, you see it all the time. You see the research where people are struggling to adjust, reintegrate, and they can't. And what ends up happening is people end up killing themselves or hurting themselves or hurting other people just to either go back in where they feel it's safe. And how wow, safe is that? Is that's what they're thinking. Yeah. And, you know, um, that uh, this stuff is always so hard for me um, to hear. Um, but another thing that's really, really hard for me to hear, um, I was talking to a young man uh, that's in prison now, uh, you know, it was right after uh, drug overdoses uh, began happening in, from different prisons, because it's not always just one place. It's, it's several different places that these things are happening. And so I said to him, I said, what's going on with all this drug use all of a sudden? And he said to me, he said to to maintain yourself, to survive this experience, you have to make yourself emotionally numb. And when I heard that, it just broke my heart that we have so many young people in prison right now, young people, and that's who's killing themselves. And to hear another young person say, the drugs are helping them to survive this experience because you have to be emotionally numb in order to survive. That is, that is horrible that people are going through this and you don't hear about it in the news. What you're going to hear about in the news is the horrible experience that uh, correctional officers are going through, what a hard time they're having. And I'm always wondering why the news media grabs onto that 
and will do story after story about the hard time correctional officers having. But what about the people who don't get to go home after that experience? What about the ones who don't get to say, um, I'm having a hard time. I need to take some time off work. I'm on disability, all this kind of stuff. What about those people? These people that are most vulnerable in our society under the under the feet, really, of whoever, you know, is, is guarding them for the day. Hopefully it's somebody that that cares because I hear about correctional officers that really care about people. Mm-hmm. But what I also hear from friends of mine who went in this system is that because they had a code of ethics and the first thing is do no harm, they say working in facilities like that, there's no way in the world you're not going to do harm. It's harmful just to have people in cages. And so they left the job. So it's 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 hard, you know, both ways. And I'm I'm really hoping that people will come out on um, tomorrow night because I'm actually gonna show a film, um, a little short film that a former uh warden, uh she's a uh female African American, used to be a warden, she's a psychologist, who talks about you know, the, the harm that's being caused on both sides, on the mm-hmm. sides of the correction, the people who go into corrections, like I say, who want to do the right thing, who want to treat people better, but the system won't allow it. And then to talk about, you know, of, of course, the harm that's done to people. And she starts off talking about the first time she's seen a lifeless body was inside the prison. And she said, you know, talking about the trauma that correctional officers face. And I think about the trauma that all the people around them that are stuck in those cages when they know someone has taken their life. God forbid if somebody was in the cell um, with that person and they did that. No one talks about that. It's just it's just mind boggling for me. Barbara, and yeah, what? Yeah. Go ahead. No, go right ahead, Pastor. No, go ahead, No, no, you can go ahead. This just kind of touches a little bit, Barbara, on what you were saying. You know, I I don't think people, you know, you were talking about the young people, right? The young people who are currently incarcerated, who have been in the successive drug use, you know, and you talk about those who, you know, the correctional officers can go home, but the people who are stuck there and can't go home, this this isn't a job, this is their life. And I think what also people don't, are forgetting is that even with the fact that, you know, second chance and the laws have changed and a lot of people are coming home, you know, one of the biggest things that I think people forget is a lot of the young people that were locked up in the 80s and 90s who are now coming home and are talking about that long-term impact of what you're saying, who were incarcerated during the time somebody took their life, could have been in the same room, in the same area. No one, ta- you know, they, they do some things. But they don't really think of the long-term impact of somebody who's been sitting in a prison for 25 years who just saw their cellmate hang up. That That's a long-lasting impact. And the drugs that they go through, even the, the legit ones that they need to take in order to, to survive, right. you know, you're talking about these are people who are deadening their emotional capabilities so they don't have to deal with all that. What happens when they come home and they right. have to deal with real life out here? That right there is where I think the Department of Corrections, specifically nationally, yes, but in Connecticut, we are failing as a whole here because they are not providing the necessary resources or help for them prior to going home, let alone when they are home. And I'm talking about the young people who are incarcerated today and those who were incarcerated back then and who are coming home now as adults. 
But remember, these were kids when they came in. What the hell are they doing now? What, what are they doing? What, what kind of help are they providing them to adapt to a world that they know nothing about? That it seems is, like they don't right. really care. No, it seems like they don't really care. They have these reentry programs that, from what I hear, is a complete joke. Well, people are making millions of dollars off them, and people are coming home and can't even get housing. They can't find jobs. The number one that I think everybody who goes through that system as a human being has got to need some serious mental health care to get back to restoring their humanity. And these kind of things are not happening. And so that's when I when I see somebody like um, this young man a few months ago who was in prison, had, had a lot of mental health problems. He was on meds and all that stuff. And he came home on parole. And I don't know what happened with his meds, but all I know, he ended up killing his one-year-old daughter. And then people will look at him like, wow, he is, he's an animal. But I always look at what did DOC do to that person that, that they could do something like that. And if, and if people are saying we have to be emotionally numb to get through this experience, where do you get your emotions back intact again? How does that happen? I, and, I, and I think, you know, even going back to what you said, Barbara, the reentry programs uh, that they have in place. I'm a part of uh, a, a reentry program in a sober housing and, and, and counseling. And what I can say to you is that a lot of the organizations that are getting the big money and that is doing very little is not based on uh, effectiveness. It's based on friendship. You got a lot of politics that are involved. And so because you my friend, even though you ain't doing a great job, but you, you know, we going to make sure you get this money. Uh, they're not looking at the data to say, okay, well, we got a reentry program or we got this program that works with uh, 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 those that are coming home or those that are incarcerated. They're not looking at how well it's, uh, it's being effective to help their lives, number one. And then let us not forget and like uh, I, I think Marcel said that um, uh, those that have been in prison since the 80s are coming home because now they really, whatever they serve their time. But remember, prison is a business. So they yes. got to keep that prison going. So they've already strategically had. Come on. Can we really be? Let, let's just be. Let's just be real right now. I know this might get me in trouble. You know but me, let me just I say like this. I don't care. Real. Listen. Uh. So. Number one, if we really did a great job on, uh, on those that are in prison and really help reform them and change them, transform them, and they come out to be productive citizens, what does that do to the jobs of the correctional officers? What does that do for the police officers who are now quadrupling their uh, you know, have to go into overtime and hire more officers? What does that do to the judicial system? that is also employed by criminals. It's employed by criminals because criminal and, and crime is always going to keep those jobs available. So the real people that got to make the real change are those people like us who really have passion and real concern about making that difference in that person's life because we cannot expect the system to do an excellent job at really yeah. reforming because then that means some people will be out of a job. So right. it's going to take us to organize and like the things that you're doing, 
Barbara, that we're doing to be able to help these individuals when they come out, that they now can become advocates for those that are inside, that we yes. can really help them understand the value of their lives and being able to help someone else never go back. I believe that the recidivism rate now is kind of rising up because of just what uh, Marcel said about uh, uh, the 80s babies coming home. Now that recidivism rate is going up just a little bit, but they got new people coming into prison. They yeah. know that that time that those individuals going to come out. So they got new charges. They don't, they don't create it where now people are being arrested and put in jail for 25 years for just minor stuff, for stuff mm -hmm. that no one will get time for. So it's all just a big system. And, yeah, and, again, like, and, I, and I think like me and you said, Barbara, families got to get involved. They they're not to. saying we're not saying we're not saying that you got to get on the front line. But families, right. and if, if, if there's a family member listening, if there's uh, uh, someone that's listening that knows someone that's incarcerated or a friend of that person, it's not that you got to get on the front line, but support the organization. Stop solitary and those organizations that are fighting on behalf of these individuals. Your body matters. You don't have mm -hmm. to speak anything, but it's your body. You showing, showing up. up. You coming out in numbers so that we can really show that we have the support of the community. Thank you. And that's my that's my biggest struggle right there is trying to get family members out. And 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 I also say that even if you don't have a family member, I mean, as a human being, knowing that other people are being abused and tortured like this, you show up. Animal That's rights right. people would never allow you to put an animal in a cage and no. um in, in in isolation, no sunshine, which everybody needs that that daily um outside. They wouldn't they would not allow you to treat an animal like that. So they're treating people worse than they would allow uh, uh people to treat an animal. That says a lot about our society. Barbara, you said it yourself. You said it yourself just now, like you talk about sunlight, daylight communication, that, that interaction, right? And I think, you know, with what Pastor Lewis was just talking about, about how our rates are going up a bit, you know, let's not forget that with the pandemic putting things on hold and now all of a sudden you're going to start seeing that spike. But it's also, I go back to my initial statement of when, you know, how do you expect people if you give them no interaction, you know, Barbara, we talk about this all the time when we were talking about the Protect Act, we're talking about Stop Solitary, you know, all these things that you've worked on, we've worked on together about, you know, just getting basic health care in the facility, not locking people down for 23 hours out of the day. How do you expect someone not to come out in an animalistic state frame of mind? When you right. treat them like animals, you know, it kind of goes back to even like, you know, the, the big F on our chest that when you come out of prison, you're that felon. And it's always this thing that I don't think unless you've done time or you've been convicted of a crime and you've been in these facilities, people look at you side eye. And no matter how much time you've done, you completed your time, you've rehabilitated yourself. Listen, I am a double college graduate. I'm in law school and you still no matter how much you do, how much positive you change your life, it is still that side eye that people give you because you are a convicted felon. And it's like you never, ever, ever beat that down. And no matter how much good you do, it's like you have to, you have to present this entire bio in a book just to even say, I am good enough to, or I can, 
because I did time doesn't mean I'm an idiot. Because I did time doesn't mean I am unredeemable. Because, you know, it, and imagine the people who are behind me who have done a hell of a lot more time than I ever did. You know, these juvenile lifers that I talk about, you know, who did 25, 30 years. Society has made them come home where they're emotionally compartmentalized. How do you expect them to survive in a world where they've learned, given the trauma they've suffered, any type of violent, anything, it, anything emotional attachment, guess what? You're going to get hurt or that's not a way to survive. You are releasing people like that in the community with no support, but you're treating them like animals while they're inside. How do you expect them not to get reactive when they're out here and they've had no ounce of human kindness in any respect? You said, how did they get back to their humanity when they were never treated right. as a human being in the first place? Right. Right. And I, and I think know, that, you know, right, I, I just wanted to quickly, I want to quickly say this because Maricel was, was triggering me in so many ways when she was talking about, you know, having that letter on your chest and never, no matter what you do, you'll never be seen as a, a good person. And it has really, all, all I kept hearing was like, that's what it feels like being black in America. I don't care what we do, how much gifts we bring, how much greatness we are, how educated we are. None of that matters because all they see is a plate of face with color in it. And they've already um, put you in a separate compartment from everybody else. So yeah. this is just yeah. American society. This is what it is. Yeah. And for, for people to have to live with that every single day, I, that's why I can I can understand when Marisol talk about people in, inside and having to, to, to go, go with these feelings and live under these conditions and vulnerable and all that stuff because I'm not in there, but I know that's how I feel as a black person. <laughs> that they yeah, have me yeah. dehumanized and I don't care how great, great I give, I am still a African-American woman in America. It, and, so it's hard. It's hard. So I can't imagine um, people coming out of prison would even been uh, abused and, 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 and tortured and all of that. And nobody cared. I, I and, don't get it. And, 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 and let me, let me just preface this also, even with what you're saying. And so people could, you know, people kind of try to say, well, they did a crime and they need to do the time. No one's saying they don't need, if they did the crime, mm -hmm. we're not saying they shouldn't do the time. What we're saying is that, but let them do the time with the expectancy of transformation and helping them with their trauma that might have caused them to act in the way that they acted. Let us not re-traumatize the trauma by putting them in a condition that does not address the issue. And so no. we're saying, you know, because it, it's just it, it, strategically. And this is what I'm saying. One of the principles of Kenyan nonviolence says attack the forces of evil, not just the, not the person doing evil. What does that mean? Instead of me addressing an individual correctional officer, instead of me addressing uh, someone that does something wrong that's a part of an organization, no, I need to change the culture and I need that's to address right. the issues that are continuing to do what they're doing. If I, instead of me just dealing with one person. And unfortunately what happens is that we have not been able to organize strategically. Like you said, Bob, come together. You're doing the work. We're doing the work. Join on with us instead of fragmentizing it and starting another movement 
Let us all come as a unit to be able to address the issue because we yeah. got to change the culture of the DOC. We got to come it. at them to be able to change the laws and the policies that are allowing them to treat these individuals that are like that same thing with policing. We got to change and deal with the culture of policing. Never right, mind just right. the individual. The individual is the scapegoat. They'll love mm -hmm. for you to attack a person. No, mm -hmm. we coming at you after your culture. We coming right. after your laws and your policies. And and, and so you, that brings me to Marisol, who is uh, <laughs> part of our protect uh, protect act is to come up with independent oversight over DLC. Connecticut is one of very few people. A very few um, states who have no independent oversight. Medically, they are the only state with no uh, oversight. So under the PROTECT Act that we got passed, the legislation we got passed um, um, is the establishing independent oversight. So we put together, South Solitary put together this uh, committee, and we were very particular and specific in in um, who we decided should be on that committee. We interviewed all these different people we, and see, okay, who's going to be a good fit? Because we know we got to make sure that people are independent of DOC. If they're connected to DOC, then they're going to work more with DOC and less about the incarcerated people. So anyway, long story short, we got this committee together, Maricel's on it, and they're, the, the, the committee right now, uh, Marisol, she can give us an update, are working toward hiring an person. Now, an person, for those who don't know, is someone who's going to go into every facility. They're going to talk to the people inside. They're going to inspect the facilities. And they're going to try to um, mediate different grievances that may be going on because the grievance process right now, a, a DOC process is, is a joke. And so um, Marisol's on that team. So Marisol, everyone's always asking me, what's going on? What's going on? They're waiting for the, the, um, the odds bus person to come in because, you know, so many people have stories that I hear about. So what is the update on the odds bus process? So right now we have, we're doing the process of looking at the applications. We are getting it down to our final, our five to do the, reviewing applications and then we are going to do five interviews i believe it is going to be it could be a little bit more but i think we're doing five interviews but then it will be the top three recommendation to the governor for the position itself again we are still working out those specific details because there are several members of the committee as well as those are who are on the subcommittee as well as the committee overall who have input and who once the applications are reviewed we are doing the interview process, then it will be, I believe, a hearing process. Again, these details are still to be agreed upon, so I'm not going to speak out of, out of turn or out of character there. But that is the hope, and we are trying to stay on the timetable in order to get this done by the end of the month or at the latest by the beginning of November in order to be able to provide the recommendations for the governor to be able to make his decision in the top three candidates. Now, the public hearing they're going to have, that's when the public People from uh, us, all of us, can weigh in. They'll have a hearing. People mm -hmm. can come to that hearing, show up, and have say about whoever the governor picks, or is that before the governor picks from his three people? When it is that public before, hearing? It will be before the governor picks. It will be with the candidates as they're interviewing us. It will be that process. So oh, excellent. the final so, three yeah. candidates, then the three candidates, the list will be given to the governor for him to make his final decision on. And if the mm -hmm. governor is unable to make his decision, there will be the oversight 
subcommittee that will make the final decision if he is unable to make it from his top mm -hmm. three choices. Excellent. So you, we will make sure that our public knows when we're going to have the public hearing, we need them to show up. I mean, it might mean I might have to take a half a day off work because you know what? When I was working and doing this work, that's what I did. Important things. I took a half a day off work because I had it was important for me to be at these these uh, these hearings. So we need the people to show up and have some input on who the governor is going to choose, because, frankly, the people the governor has chosen so far um, have not really been for the people. Uh, and I think it's because he's really not that invested in things like jails and prisons. And so he probably takes all his walking orders from the commissioner. And of course, if you're attached to DOC, you don't see anything wrong with what you're doing um, because you have to convince yourself you're doing the right thing. How else do you live with yourself? So we want to make sure that um, that whoever gets to the governor's desk is not somebody who somehow the uh, DOC got to uh, push through the process and they're the ones who end up um, being in this position. So thank and, you for and, that. And, and can I just say this? And, and I and I want to encourage, again, like you said, people to, uh, Barbara, for people to come out. You know, again, a lot of people don't feel like, well, it's not my son. It's not my individual. You know, it's not someone that I know. But injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Dr. King had said that. We are to speak for those that can't speak for themselves. Trust me, it's going to come around. It's going to impact those individuals that feel like they are not impacted right now. Mm -hmm. And it's when, like you said, it's when we sacrifice. And yes, we might have to take that day off in order to make sure that we just get someone in there like yourself that's going to really have the heart for the people. And that's what I'm saying. We got to be dedicated enough to say, you know what? I really don't have time to engage with all of this. But for this day, I'm going to take this time off. I'm going to make sure I show up. I'm going to make sure I support that. That's what it takes. That's mm -hmm. what it takes. That one day. So, again, definitely getting that message out so that people will know when and, and really support that you get in there and that you are able to really do the work and continue on to do the work that we can do the work that we continue on to do the um fight for those uh individuals for those individuals that are in the system the, the last thing i want to say is to the correctional officers to those that may be doing things one of the things the other principle that we teach is says avoid internal violence as well as avoid internal violence as well as physical violence of the spirit what does that mean you see you know it's wrong what you're doing but you keep on doing it anyway you know that you wouldn't even treat no one like that, but you're treating them like that because everybody else is treating them like that and you're afraid to say something. That causes an internal rot. That really wears on your character. You as a human being, I'm talking to whoever correctional officer, whatever individual that has the authority to deal with any individual that's in the system, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a correctional officer, or whether you're the one to make those decisions. You cannot be at peace with yourself knowing that these things are being done to these individuals. And people, and you wonder why you don't have the peace that you really desire to have is because you know what you're doing is wrong and you need to be courageous enough to step up and start to do the right thing. Because this could be your child. Think of it as being your son or your daughter. Just think of that being somebody in your family. Yeah. 
So can I touch on that, Pastor Lewis? You know, there's research that shows that the lifespan of those who work in corrections isn't very long once they retire. Wow. And that is living with the, you know, and again, there's some, there are good officers and there, there are, there have been, I've seen them, I've met them. So it's not like it, it doesn't right. exist. However, you know, you, you know, justice serves both ways, you know, where people think that they can treat someone like an animal or they can treat them in the most poorest fashion possible. Understand it will come back one way or the other, you know, whether it's in karmic energy, God, it, it will go, it will come out that way. You know, one of the things you had mentioned earlier, Vestival, is about when people are involved in corrections, a lot of people coming home, I think one of the things that prevents them, whether they're on supervision or they finished and they are home, is either not wanting to be involved in anything, to, you know, with reentry or anything, because people just honestly, after doing 25 years or even God knows how much time some people have done, they don't want to be reminded of that aspect of their life anymore. They want to put it behind them and act like that didn't happen. Unfortunately, the echoes of corrections, echoes yeah. in the trauma, the stress, the everything, you know, we, we talk about this in health, all of everything, your trauma does manifest itself. And there's obviously studies, there's research that shows this. And the people who, you know, the Safe Center at Yale has so much um, research as well as throughout the entire country that talks about people who've been incarcerated. You talk about cancer, you talk about heart problems, you talk about other things. The trauma does impact these, you know, the, the population. They come home. You are surprised why the mental health, why people commit suicide. Either people are cut off from a community that they have known for over 20 years and they have no sense of community out here. Or, you know, it just, the body, the spirit can keep going, but sometimes even the spirit and the body both give. Because after that, after being treated like an animal for 25, 30 years, you've managed to get through all that. You come out here and it's like your heart stops. What, what else is there anymore? You, you, nothing and, else. And, and you went in, trauma, Okay, whatever made me like I went to jail in the 79 or I think it's 79, 80. I only did about eight or nine months. That was good enough for me. I was in Cheshire. I was I remember my number, eight eight five two five. I was on the eighth galley. It did it for me. I never wanted to go back into a system that had me uh, uh in control of my life. Now, even back then, they had all kind of programs set up for you. Back then in that time. They had programs that would help you. You had your GED, you had school, you had all of that stuff there. But I wasn't in there long enough, but I did never want to go back. But hurt people hurt people. So we're not even right. talking about, we're not even talking about what made them go there. We're not even addressing that. And that's the issue. That issue has to be addressed. I think there should be something set up in DOC, like I think Barbara said, from the mental health perspective, to address the issue of that individual that might have career, uh, uh, did that crime. Let's get to the root of that. Let's get them the help that they really need. But they don't want to spend no money on really addressing the issue of those individuals and their mental state, like Barbara was talking about, to really get to the root of that. Because hurt people hurt people. You got people that came up in families that was infested with drug addiction, grew up in an environment that's impoverished. All of these things are factors here. So it's not just one solution or one thing that we have to address. There's a multiplicity of things that have to be addressed. However, 
you know, we sometimes we just do this little bit or we address that one. No, we got to address all of those issues, but everybody can't do everything. Everybody cannot do everything. So, again, that trauma piece, I think I read something about suppressed trauma is the trauma that people learn to live with. However, yeah. in, in, in those environments, that trauma that's suppressed, it comes out without them even really realizing that that triggered that. And they go into this point where they can hurt somebody or hurt themselves. And we you know, also know that the trauma changes your DNA. So you yeah. pass that, your DNA is changed, then you have children and who are going to pick up the, the traumatized yes. DNA that you have. So my thing is, if people really cared about the people that ended up in prison, they would they would take care of those issues uh, front hand. But the re but if we look at what what why is it so important to have these prisons, then we understand why people don't care to address the issues, because that's cheap labor. The 13th Amendment mm -hmm. to the Constitution said slavery is abolished unless they are serving time. And so now enslaving people, <laughs> making them work like they do in the Connecticut prisons for a dollar for a full day of work. That's mm -hmm. legal under the 13th Amendment. Who wants to have to pay somebody $60,000 a year when they can get them inside those prison walls and pay them for a dollar a day to do the same work? Who would do that? This is a business. There's some people got to understand. And when your business is full of people that you don't really care too much about, nobody cares how you're treated. It's Perfect. that cheap labor that's going to keep these jails and prisons going. That cheap labor. It ain't if about crime. Look, if you look at, so recently, you know, if many people saw, I did a panel with Senator Somers and a victim. Uh, this was right after Giles was removed as chairman of the board of pardons and parole and i had the conversation Stop with one minute, Mayor Saul, because remind me to come back to that point okay go on so we were talking about you know one of the biggest things uh you know they were saying that giles was acting like this social you know social justice rogue out there you know forgetting that um first of all lamont <laughs> Lamont was real quick to say, hey, you know, you guys are not being progressive enough in terms of commutation policy. Let's change it up. And during COVID, they put it on hiatus. They went and did all this. They re-looked at a lot of things. If I'm not mistaken, Giles was a 25-year veteran of the police department. Yeah. This is a man that I knew personally, not because I knew Giles as a friend, but because I met uh, Chairman Giles in the prison when I was incarcerated at the worth unit, at your correction, he made it a point to come when we were doing the restorative community. He made it a point to come through the prison to see what's going on, what things can change. So the work that he did wasn't done under the cover of night, like, oh my God, let me just hide all this from the citizens of Connecticut just to release all these violent offenders. No, this was not what was done. This was done in transparency with the push of the governor at the time. However, now all of a sudden this year, we're looking at this at commutations because numbers are, data is being showed in, in a negative skewed light showing that all these people are being released. But hold on a second. All these people were being released, you know, with, again, excessively long time, certain things being done, a lot of transformative work. But nobody wants to look at that. In my conversation with Senator Somers, you know, she was very big to kind of point out about, um, you know, these the transparency, the policies, the victims. 
And as I had the conversation with her, and I'll still stand by today, and I will always stand by, I am not saying that the loss of life, that when people have committed crimes, you know, we all know, as Pastor Bullish just said, we, you know, you have to do the time for whatever you've done. No one's saying all that. However, let's be realistic and let's be appropriate. That doesn't mean to treat the people like animals and then put them in a cage and say, forget about you. But let's mm -hmm. also, you know, as he talked about the trauma, you know, Senator Summers was talking about how one of her constituents was talking, saying that, you know, they sign these contracts when they take a plea deal. I want to ask you a question. What person who has gone through the, system, the correctional system or the police criminal justice system that has been traumatized, let's say, heaven forbid, there was a loss of life. Okay. They are now feeling shame, guilt, all of this. Let's think of mental health here. All these things they're going through, they're now being put in handcuffs, being paraded about everywhere, being treated like an animal in the correctional system, through the criminal justice system. They want to make this pain stop. They want to make it stop for their family, for themselves. They don't want to go through this day after day. I hate to put it in the same accountability, but anybody will agree to anything in order to make emotional, psychological pain stop. I say this as someone who's a survivor of sexual assault, as someone who's been a survivor of emotional abuse. That's just emotional abuse. Imagine someone who is living with guilt, trauma, and all that compounded, dealing with the Department of Corrections and all that, that kind of stress. If I'm going before the judge and they say to me 85 years and I'm going to be like, okay, you're, you're not in your right frame of mind. So for someone to turn around and say, these are well, these are agreements that they made and they agreed to. If you were pulling my nails out through the nail bed with a rusty nail or with whatever the case, I'd agree to anything. I'd agree to sell my mom down the street. Okay, let's be realistic. You cannot hold someone accountable when they are at an all-time low in their life. You can't sit there and say that them accepting an 85, 50-year, 60-year sentence as a part of a plea agreement is saying that they knew what they were signing on for. Uh, no. Let, you know, again, it is never to take away from the loss of life. It is not to take away from the victims and their families. But you have got to look at this in a much more, it, it's never going to be fair. It's never going to be without, both sides lose here. It's never going to be just one yeah. side. But you cannot turn around and say that that is fair. That is just, and they are going through one of the most, the most emotional lows. And for you to turn around and say that things are being done in the cover of night, that things are fair and that they shouldn't have any opportunity. What is that? Lock up and you know throw away the key? Then mm -hmm. well, that defeats the entire purpose of yeah. transformative rehabilitation. <laughs> Go ahead, Barbara. Sorry. Yeah. It's interesting to me how uh, people like uh, Summers uh, can make comments like that. Well, they signed an agreement. Uh, plea bargain for people like us. We know the system is not just, it's not fair. If we don't sign that plea bargain, you're going to get probably two to three times more time because you didn't agree to the plea bargain. So people are not saying, so when you say it's a contract, let's be real. It's not a contract. It's you, you either say, yes, I did it, plea bargain, or you say no and go to trial and we're going to bury you if you go to trial. Tell a 17-year-old you're getting 85 years and, and, and think that they're saying, Okay, I'll take the 85 years and sign it. No, they're saying if you don't take the 85, we're going to bury you. You'll be in there for the rest of your life and beyond if we can. So let's be real about that. Getting back to commutation. Okay, so uh, Chairman Giles, 
was uh, removed from his job because a few Republicans uh, had a little problem. And that's another thing about Connecticut. Republicans are in the minority, but they seem to slap the mess out of the Democrats when it comes to anything. They they win. So a few Republicans were were upset about this uh, chairman. And let me back up a little bit. I'm going to talk about two people, no, three people really that I know already who have either been demoted or lost their jobs just in last year or, or about to lose their job. And they're all black. Chairman Giles, black man, did a great job with the commutations. He he didn't do it on his own. He did it because the public was pushing him to do a better job. And like you said, he did a lot of interviewing. A lot of people came before him, did not get their commutation. So it's not like everybody was getting them. But um, a few Republicans got upset about it. And so what did they do? They they removed him as chairman. OK, now they have another woman, another person in, in that place, um, uh, a white female who who is now the chair. And since she's been in the chair, she's changed the policy. So it's, it's going to be next to impossible. I don't know if you've seen the commutation policy now. It's going to be next to impossible for you to get out of prison um, before your time. And that's because she doesn't care anything about any kind of improvements that you made uh, inside. She doesn't care about that you have some kind of remorse. It's, it's always going to be about the seriousness of the crime that you committed. So that means the commutations, I think they said there was one uh, recently that that got their sentence commuted. And and he's he, um, he's related to a, um, a DOC official. So that may be why he got his. So this is a commutation process. OK, here's another black female um, 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 state rep, Robin Porter removed from her chair uh, chair in the position. Why? Because she pushes for the people. She is one of those politicians who went in to, to, for the people and she continues to fight for the people with, with all the backlash that comes at her. So she was removed from her chair position. Okay, now we have the first um, black um, chief um, public defender um, got, got her position. Now she's in the news. The commission's coming at her already reprimanded her. She's only been on the job a year. And you can see uh, the Republicans probably got a little something to say about that. And if, if they have anything to do with it, she won't have her position. So the thing that bothers me even more so that they keep picking on any black leadership is that we have so much black leadership that is not saying anything. They're just silent. Where are the voices of the people that black legislators are white allies, so-called allies, um, where are the where are they? Where are the, the even the public to say why you keep going after our black leadership, taking them out of their position? Silence. So I'm 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 just seeing all of this stuff. To me, those are public lynchings of our people, and ain't nobody got a word to say about it. So I, Carla, I'm, I'm I'm upset about that. Also, I have to add to that because you what you were just talking about about this new commutation policy. So before that even occurred and before Senator, Senator Somers was out in the public media, in the newspaper, as well as, you know, out there, you know, I had had this conversation with her in May, June, and I saw one of the juvenile parole hearings, right? I was watching, it looked like a bloodbath. It was, you might as well say there were piranhas let loose on a, an, not an innocent individual, but you might as well, someone who was unsuspecting. So, you know, at least when Giles went into the facilities, you know, he knew what was going on. He knew about programs, you know, and I will say that because I met the entire parole board when I went to the sentencing um, symposium last year at UConn Law. There were everybody were there. This is just before this all went down. 
when one of the women, and this is what frightens me with what you just said, Barbara, about our black leadership, a woman of color who was on the juvenile parole board was adamant that this young woman had chosen not to get a, a program that would have addressed one of her underlying issues. What she failed to recognize, again, at your correction, the only female facility in the state of Connecticut, that York has two sides to it, the East and the West. And if you're a certain level, you're not allowed on the East side. Now, this young woman was a mentor in the 18 to 25 unit. She was a, a juvenile when she went in, and she was one of the first leading mentors as a young woman, you know, mentoring these kids. That wasn't a choice for her. That was a program she joined, but she was a level four or five at the time. She ended up getting a commutation under Giles, which was great. However, mm -hmm. as a result of his removal, that, you know, these people were saying, well, you know, you have mental health, you have substance abuse. Why didn't you go to Marilyn Baker? Marilyn Baker is an East Side program. Unless you're a level two and below or a level three with certain almost end of sentence, this young woman had 27 years. There was no way at the time she had only served like 14. Under no circumstances was she ever going to be eligible to be able to go to Marilyn Baker unless she was close to the end of her time. The wow. ignorance of the parole yeah. board to insist that she made the choice that she wasn't going to get this program. She couldn't. Her level right. was never going to be low enough. And the fact that the the parole board was adamant that she made this decision, she didn't make this decision. It was out of her hands. Right. The fact that they knew nothing about this. And, that, and that's it. Yep. That's it. You, you're you're in control. You're in the lead. You're cheering, but you're ignorant to the facts about what people can get and what they can't. Um, I, I I just want to let you know we have three minutes left, so I'm trying to see what to touch on with that. Well, only that we can end up on time. So one other thing I quickly wanted to talk about. I don't know if you're aware of it. Uh, I'm I'm also noticing preventative detention happening. Preventative detention is somebody uh, gets arrested. Everybody in Connecticut, unless it's a uh, capital crime, should get uh, uh, bail. Well, they're mm -hmm. trying to slide in preventative detention, which means, uh, well, we're not going to get this person bail because we want to prevent them from committing crime. That's not supposed to be happening, but I can see Connecticut sliding that in. And I know of people who are in prison right now with no bail no capital crime, and yet it's allowed. So I just, I'm really concerned because I see Connecticut law just going backwards and backwards and backwards, and nobody's addressing it. I write op-eds all the time. I don't know what, why people are not saying anything. Maybe it's the ignorance. Maybe they don't know that these things are happening, but that's what's happening. And I just got this thing that it's time to end. So I'm so sorry we have to do this again when you're talking about jails and prisons and everybody ain't talking about it. It takes a lot of time. But thank you so much for, to Tom to give us this opportunity. And thank you both for coming on today. Have a great day. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some inhibition, this new addition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling with